Support for WPR comes from Analog Ice Cream and Coffee, offering handcrafted cookies, coffees, and Wisconsin ice cream in the heart of Sister Bay. More information is available on Facebook and Instagram at Analog SB. Support for WPR comes from the Dram Corporation, manufacturers of commercial tools, equipment, and systems for greenhouse and nursery professionals for over 80 years. More information is at DRAMM.com. It's Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. Coming up, what's in a name? We'll look at the top names for newborns in the United States and the trends that drive some names to the top and leave others behind. Now, President Biden released his third federal budget proposal today. It includes proposed changes to Medicare. Those changes would include raising the payroll tax for those earning $400,000 or more and expanding Medicare's ability to negotiate drug prices. In an opinion piece in Tuesday's New York Times, the president says his plan will extend Medicare's solvency for the next 25 years without cutting benefits. Republicans they say they also have a plan to keep Medicare solvent, but without raising taxes. The partisan divide over the future of Medicare led to a contentious moment at last month's State of the Union address. Some Republicans want Medicare and Social Security to sunset. I'm not saying it's a majority. Let me give you... Anybody who doubts it, contact my office. I'll give you a copy. I'll give you a copy of the proposal. You can join in with your thoughts and questions on the future of Medicare at 800-642-1234. Are you enrolled in Medicare yourself? Are there things that work for you? Are there things that don't? Do you have questions about uh, what pays for Medicare and how it works? Call 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or email ideas at WPR.org. Tom Oliver is a professor of population health sciences at the UW School of Medicine and Public Health. Tom, welcome back to Central Time. Thanks. Good to be with you, Rob. I want to start out talking about the basics of Medicare, Tom, because I got to admit, I've talked about Medicare and Medicaid Social Security on the air for years and years, and I still get a little confused over where they blur into each other. First of all, who uses the Medicare system? Well, this is for folks who have paid into the Social Security system for 10 years or more, and when they reach age 65, they then become eligible uh, for Medicare. And we can talk more about that. Then in addition to that, so that's about 55 uh, to 60 million Americans. There's another six or seven million Americans who are permanently disabled under Social Security. And they are also entitled to uh, Medicare uh, benefits. So we're talking about 60, 65 million Americans uh, and a very good chunk of uh, both the country's population and here in Wisconsin as well. Well, let's get into the ABCs of Medicare or maybe the ABDs. There's Medicare Part A, B and D that people may hear about. What are those different components of the system? Well, you know, it might be best to back up as to is this actually a conversation about Medicare or not? Uh, because honestly, this is all part of President Biden's budget proposals, mm -hmm. and uh, he's going to have to work out with the Congress how we pay our bills over the next few years. Uh, and so largely, this is not about Medicare at all. It's just part of a bigger fight and a bigger political process over federal budgeting and a reduction of the federal debt. And then on the other hand, there are these proposals are, I think, a preemptive move by the president to modify Medicare 
but in a particular way that's seen as protecting its long-term future as well as protecting current beneficiaries. And so uh, just a very you know big picture uh, is what happened. Well, in the last 20 some years, we've had two major uh, income tax cuts in the early 2000s and then again in 2017. And then we had two really economic disasters, the Great Recession, uh, in 20, uh, 2008, 2009, and then the COVID-19 pandemic. And so that really increased government spending at the same time certain kinds of revenues went down. So part of it is like, why do we even have these big budget deficits? Uh, now, because we're fighting inflation uh, and we have higher interest rates, everything the government pays for, whether it's healthcare or defense or crop subsidies or highway construction or anything else, uh, it's going to cost the government more uh, in interest payments. And uh, so we'd rather pay for real things than paying interest, obviously. The other big thing that is specific about Medicare is there's a much uh, a larger growing population, as you mentioned, of older Americans eligible for Social Security and Medicare. And depending on our immigration policies, fewer working age Americans paying into the Social Security and Medicare programs. And then finally, one last thing, healthcare almost always goes up faster in terms of its prices and payments, whether by government or private employers or individuals than income and prices for other goods and services. So. This is a healthcare discussion. It's a Medicare discussion, but it's also about our general society and our general uh, economic situation. Sure. Um, Keying in on Medicare. So 2028 is a year that uh, gets talked about a lot, a point where I believe it's the Medicare Part A system uh, won't be paying for itself in some ways. It doesn't mean Medicare collapses at that point. But why are we focused in on this 2028 concept, Tom? Well, way back in 1965, uh, the uh, President Johnson and the Democrats who pushed through Medicare at the time, they were focused only on hospital insurance, which was the most expensive part of health care for people. And so they created Part A of uh, Medicare, and it was funded through a trust fund that the payroll taxes that we pay, uh, those of us who have uh, hourly wages or a salary, that is uh, a small chunk of that goes into Social Security and Medicare uh, while we're working, and then we get Medicare later on when we retire. Uh, so that is a trust fund that comes and goes and is dependent on certain kinds of income, whereas the rest of Medicare is paid for by different kinds of taxes, income taxes and some others, as well as contributions in the form of premiums, deductibles and coinsurance from beneficiaries receiving the services. Talking to Tom Oliver from the UW School of Medicine and Public Health, looking at the future of Medicare and how we pay for it. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Let's go to your calls now. Steve is with us in Ashland. Steve, hi. Hi. Um, I'm paying about $750 a month for a life-saving medication, and Medicare pays for about $2,400 a month. For that same medication, I think it costs AbbVie Pharmaceutical about a hundred dollars a month to make that drug. 
I'm wondering why we're still not negotiating, why Medicare is still not negotiating with the pharmaceutical industry on medication prices. Steve, thanks for the call. Uh, This is part of the president's proposal. Uh, There are some drugs uh, now that Medicare can negotiate in some ways on. The president wants to add to that. Can you talk about that piece of the puzzle, Tom? Yes, I am very hopeful that you will see a better situation quite soon. Uh, Going back to last year in the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, that began to allow Medicare for the very first time ever to start negotiating prescription drug prices. And remember, Medicare doesn't actually pay directly for prescription drugs because of this, uh, Rob, you referred to this Part D. Mm -hmm. There's these private uh, prescription drug coverage plans that uh, Medicare beneficiaries have to sign up for. So it is the beginning of the really high cost uh, drugs. It sounds like yours ought to be one of those, but apparently it is not yet. But this new proposal by the president would expand Medicare's negotiating powers to many more drugs uh, and take us from a handful of overvalued drugs that are very obvious to a broader class of drugs that are still super costly uh, to those of you who need to take those particular medications. So I'm, I'm hopeful we will see this begin uh, as Medicare has in many other areas, uh, payments to physicians, payments to hospitals, to step into the game uh, slowly, but then aggressively move uh, over the years to make this a much more systematic part of something that would be really important to many Americans. Steve, thanks for sharing your experience. Now, Tom, uh, critics of this negotiation idea, and I'm thinking of a, there's an editorial in the Wall Street Journal, for example, have made the case uh, with these negotiations, with lowering uh, reimbursements or compensation for the production of these medications, it's a disincentive to research a new drug, to produce a new drug, to make it available to the market. If a company looks at the bottom line and says, well, we're going to make less money down the road because of this change, maybe we shouldn't develop this drug in the first place. Do you worry about that disincentive effect? Undoubtedly, there would be Uh, some disincentive. That's objectively true. But how much of a disincentive? There are still lengthy patent protections for uh, true breakthrough drugs. Uh, You can still have plenty of what we call the blockbusters uh, to come along. And so I think it's really a distraction when the industry says that we're going to lose all new research and development and new innovation because there's plenty of economic incentive and financial interest in developing new, more profitable medications that affect a lot of people. Uh, and, and so I, I worry more about incentives for researching drugs that affect very few people and so-called orphan drugs um, in terms of these kinds of problems. Um, and you know, the honest, the honest truth is um, uh, drug companies don't put that much into research and development. Uh, compared to lots of other costs that they incur and sources of profits. Talking to Tom Oliver, professor of population health sciences at the UW School of Medicine and Public Health, looking at uh, Medicare. The president has some suggested changes in his budget. Congressional Republicans talking as well, and you can too, at 800-642-1234. Are there changes you'd like to see in Medicare? Do you rely on it yourself? What works for you? What doesn't? 
if you are a health care provider. Do you have thoughts on the Medicare system? Call 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. We'll continue the conversation coming up here on Central Time. It's Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. We're picking up our talk with Tom Oliver, professor of population health sciences at the UW School of Medicine and Public Health, taking a look at the future of Medicare. And you can join in at 800-642-1234 with your thoughts, your experiences, your questions for our guest. That's 800-642-1234. Go back to your calls now. Nancy is with us in Milwaukee. Nancy, hi. Hello. I've helped. I have belonged to a Medicare Advantage plan for many years, but there were many years when I was younger that I hardly ever saw the doctor, and yet my insurance company was being paid a very large sum of money every month for my care. But as I said, I was in very good health and didn't need to see a doctor. But now that I'm older, I'm going to be charged $1,000 as a copay for a drug for advanced osteoporosis. And I resent the fact that now I'm paying this very large copay when the insurance company got the benefit of this uh, number of dollars, which I think was over 500 per month, for my care. And yet, and yet I'm being treated now as as paying a copay that a patient would pay who had to go to a doctor maybe more than once a month every single year. Nancy, thanks for the call. Tom, Medicare Advantage, uh, it's... Uh it's a different kind of animal. Can you tell us what that is and uh, if Nancy's situation is common? Yes. Well, this was introduced uh, several decades ago and evolved over time. But basically, it tries to combine all the different parts of Medicare, the hospital care, the uh, physicians and home care, uh, and also prescription drugs all into one package. And it's attractive to a lot of folks who have been part of a private health plan through their employer or some other source uh, through through their working lives. Um, the challenge here is that each of these plans has its own different rules internally for how much uh, they're going to cover different elements of this. Um, again, there's a little bit of hope in the Inflation Reduction Act in 2022, and now moving forward, to try to stop people like Nancy from having to pay, uh, you know, more than a certain amount for deductibles toward any particular drug. And again, $1,000 for a single medication. Well, that's something that, you know, should cover most of your prescriptions for all of them for the whole year. And the idea that this is something you're subject to year after year after year is also really difficult for folks who don't have, you know, uh, uh, unlimited um, income, right? So this is uh, a big challenge for Medicare to start looking across the board at all these drug plans and try to start setting some tighter rules that protect folks. So while some protections are underway and have already been enacted, uh, there's got to be obviously more and much more uh, setting sites on particular drugs that are uh, really seemingly very much out of line in terms of their pricing, like insulin and other things. Yes, we've made some progress. We have a lot more to go. Nancy, thanks a lot for that call. I want to check out, Tom, uh, some of the specific proposals that people are bouncing around aimed at the long-term funding of Medicare. Now, President Biden, we mentioned the the drug negotiations. He also said, okay, let's bump up the Medicare uh, payroll tax 
for uh, people making over $400,000 a year. I think it's by 1.2%. Those two together, he says, uh, add another 25 years to the healthy financial life of Medicare. What do you think of that part of the uh, president's budget? Well, the intent, obviously, because we talked about this almost artificial uh, thing that people call bankruptcy if we go, if we empty the hospital insurance trust fund, um, people get very fixated on how many years left, you know, uh, they're uh, given rates. Um, It's a very clever way to take the new money from um, taxes on much higher income Americans and also some additional uh, savings from prescription drug um, uh, reduction, cost reductions, funnel that all into the hospital insurance trust fund, and that would get us 25 or more years um, based on current projections. Uh, Again, it's unfortunate that Medicare is so fragmented. It's not a single coherent health plan. And it's got lots of gaps. And I think, honestly, when I teach my students and talk to regular people, um, they don't even understand how much money Medicare beneficiaries have to pay out of their own pocket um, simply to cover all the things that Medicare doesn't cover, even as expensive as it is to taxpayers and the federal government. And then uh, the Republican House Study Committee a couple months back floated the idea of uh, boosting the minimum age for Medicare recipients to future for future recipients now uh, from 65 to 67. What would you see the impact of that being? Well, what they're trying to do is say, hey, we, you know, on average until COVID and opioids came along in America, we had continued to see longer lifespans um, on average across the board. Uh, so we've done this with Social Security, where it, we're on our way to uh, having uh, age 67 be the start of Social Security benefits for folks. Um, why not Medicare? Well, the answer is that we have different kinds of jobs, I think. And if you are, you know, in construction or, or working, in, you know, in uh, agriculture or a whole host of uh, very difficult jobs where you're on your feet or lifting or things. Bodies break down. Uh, we Different folks have mental um, illness challenges. Um, it is not really just something you can automatically say, hey, just two more years, everybody can uh, be fine. The other real reality check is if you increased that, um, Medicare wouldn't save very much money. Those two years, as uh, Nancy pointed out, are kind of the cheap years for Medicare, where people are still pretty healthy and not using that much health care. So if you want to do something about it, you know, you'd have to deal with people who are over 80 or uh, 85 years old. Uh, That's where a lot of the costs for Medicare are end of life, so to speak, in our last year of life, when a lot of things are breaking down and we have all kinds of high technology and uh, lots of different people trying to take care of us and keep us alive uh, for, you know, relatively short periods of time. Let's go back to our callers now. We've got Phyllis in Madison. Phyllis, hello. Hello. What did you want to ask about? Um, I'm wondering how the negotiating um, for drug prices by Medicare will affect the pharmacy benefit managers. Phyllis, thanks for the call. Tom, a whole other part of our health care uh, payment system, the, the people, the companies that manage our pharmacy benefits, are they impacted as you see it by the, uh, the Medicare uh, prescription drug negotiation power? 
Well, you know, this just goes back this one year. Uh, basically, if you look at the history of Medicare, a whole system has to be built and put in place. It's going to have to deal with the pharmacy benefit managers and their rules and their practices, which are allowable, which are encouraged, which do they actually have to take up and start doing more strongly uh, and setting these much more consistent rules across um, all the different drug plans and applying to all the beneficiaries. So we, I think we've got a long ways to go in building the practices and the institutions and the rules, and then actually enforcing and making sure that they're working well. Uh, but they're obviously getting a chunk of all the money. Are they providing the value in uh, helping us uh, save money for those of us actually using the drugs? Thanks a lot for the call, Phyllis. Tom, in, in just our last minute or so, we've been talking about you know what we're hearing from uh, Democrats and Republicans on this. What would you like to see policymakers focus on when it comes to Medicare? Well, I think it's actually needs to be greatly improved. Um, there's, as I said, there's many holes in it. Um, for example, it doesn't pay anything towards long-term care for people who need that beyond a short month-long stay recovering from a hospital surgery or something else. Uh, there's a lot of other gaps that are still, there's no dental care. <laughs> there's no uh, other kinds of things that are uh, part of the body and uh, certainly part. And uh, also the president is in, uh, proposing mental health improvements um, as well. So there's a lot of things that Medicare needs to be greatly improved. And, you know, when it comes to reducing our Medicare spending, um, you know, really have simple choices. You can cut benefits or you can cut payments to healthcare providers or you can increase revenues from all taxpayers, some taxpayers or from current beneficiaries. And so it's obviously politically a lot better to not make the program worse in terms of its benefits. So healthcare providers are going to have to get a little more realistic about uh, their growth in spending and their use of technology. And we've got to get more careful about where is the healthcare money being spent and on what things are they are necessary, which ones are appropriate, which ones are really not appropriate, and try to get much more careful about that. But it's a very, very difficult uh, process. And as you can imagine, each of us feels differently about the things that affect us personally versus everybody else. Tom, thanks again for joining us today. Thank you so much. That's Tom Oliver, Professor of Population Health Sciences at the UW School of Medicine and Public Health. He was with us today to help us understand where the two parties would like to take Medicare into the future. Coming up tomorrow on The Morning Show with Kate Archer-Kent, can people in Wisconsin find child care when and where they need it? Join the conversation. That's tomorrow morning at 7 here on the Ideas Network. You're listening to Central Time here on the Ideas Network. I'm Rob Ferrett. Coming up today at 6 on 1A+, Jen White talks to Jeff Tweedy from the band Wilco. His new project chronicles many of his past anxieties and present-day pressures as a much-loved dad rocker. That's today at 6 on 1A+. Now there's a good chance that you have a first name. I do. And there's also a good chance that there's a personal story about where that name came from. That's at the individual level. But big picture, there are trends that put some names at the top of the charts and lead others into obscurity, and in some cases, bring them back again. Our next guest has been watching those trends and studying names past and present for years now, and we're going to check in on some of the latest news in names. 
and you can join in at 800-642-1234. Is there a story behind your name? Did you have the same name as lots of people in your circles, or did you have a really different name that stood out? Either way, what were the ups and downs of that? Have you noticed trends in the names you're seeing these days? Call 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234, or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. Laura Wattenberg is the founder of Namerology.com, author of the Baby Name Wizard books and the original creator of BabyNameWizard.com. Laura, thanks a lot for joining us today. Hi, Rob. Happy to be here. Well, you let me know earlier that we may be on the verge of a big change in the world of names. What did you mean by that? I think we're really at a, a turning point for a kind of third era of American naming. Traditionally, up through the 1960s and really going back centuries into in, in England, the same core of names dominated, the John and Mary and James and Elizabeth. It was a very conservative naming culture focused on fitting in. Then for the last half century or so, we've been in a style-driven age where parents are trying to be fashion forward and the sound of names has dominated. But I'm starting to see now that we're moving away from an era where an entire sound like Kristen and Christie or Aiden, Jaden, Braden, and Caden can sweep across the country. Instead, we're seeing a kind of fracturing as everyone is looking to be truly unique. Interesting. And I know you watch for those unique names starting to emerge in the latest data. I think we're waiting a couple months now for the latest Social Security Administration data. But what are some of the some of those unique names that really seem to stand out to you in, in the modern naming trends? One of the things we're seeing now is parents being much more open to turning word names and words and places into names. We've seen that in the past with names like London or Paris, but now it might be Cairo or Everest. And in terms of words, parents of boys in particular are getting remarkably aggressive. We're seeing boys named Rage and Riot and even Chaos and Mayhem. That parents are seem to be presenting a whole different image of what it means to be a boy in America. Do we see uh, uh, little trends like that pop over over time and then and then disappear quickly? Or is it likely that these, these things that are emerging are going to be here to stay? Individual names definitely come and go. But when you see a bunch of names together moving in a direction, that usually tells you something about our society. I like to think of name trends as a kind of fossil record of culture, because parents take these decisions very seriously. It really reflects how they see themselves and what they dream of for their children. Looking at the most recent available data, we've got uh, for boys, I think the Liam, Noah, and William in the top three, Emma, Olivia, and Ava. What leads names to kind of stick and go to the top of the charts and and stay there for a while in some cases? I think the top of the charts are a little bit of an illusion because only traditional names can ever rise to the top of the charts. If you think about it, every parent who's trying to be unique is sort of hidden statistically. So what we see is the points that we agree on. In terms of Emma and Noah and Liam, you see that the sound people agree on today is very smooth, really dominated by vowels. It's a big change from the era of Herman and Gertrude. Now, when I was in the kid naming business uh, with twins, uh, we chose names that were that felt kind of unique, not way out there, but kind of unique. And then, of course, 
as our kids grew up, we kept seeing kids with the same or very similar names to it. How common is that for people like me to be like, yes, we've got these unique names that everybody else uniquely named their kids at the same time? It really is disconcerting because our taste feels so personal and individual. And we might feel like, oh, I just happen to be the kind of person who prefers unusual names. And I just happen to think that Olivia sounds attractive. And then you look around and it turns out that your tastes really are shaped by your community and your generation. And you and your friends probably have very similar tastes. Talking to Laura Wattenberg, founder of Namerology.com, longtime student of what we name our kids. And now we want to hear from you at 800-642-1234. Where did your name come from? What did your parents tell you about uh, why they named you that? Were you happy with that decision? Did you feel stuck with it? And how about uh, if you're questing for a name or recently named a kid yourself, where did you go for inspiration? If you're at a place where you see lots of kids, a teacher maybe, what trends are you seeing in your own classroom? Call 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Laura, I mentioned to you earlier my name, Rob. I came from my parents watching the old Dick Van Dyke show. They like the sound of Rob. Is it common for pop culture to be a source of inspiration for names? I know you've written about uh, Harry Potter and Game of Thrones, for example. Oh, absolutely. Parents take names from wherever they find them. But there's a difference from the era of the Dick Van Dyke show. You know, as, as a Laura, I also have a, a <laughs> name from, from the, the Petri family. But once upon a time, if parents were naming after Shirley Temple, they would say so. Oh, we chose Shirley after Shirley Temple. She's so adorable. Today, parents are less willing to say they're naming after someone. It's just that they're looking around for inspiration for any fresh ideas wherever that you can, they can find them. And a great example of that is that one of the biggest forces in baby naming in terms of celebrity has been the TV show Teen Mom that follows pregnant, unmarried teenagers. Those, the names from that show, like Macy and Bentley, went through the roof, even though parents weren't presumably aspiring for their children today to take that kind of path. It's just where they find the names. And is it the case that, you know, we see something in pop culture and, and just like the sound of it, whether, I mean, the kids in, say, a Game of Thrones, they go through some pretty rough stuff, but the, the name sounds cool, so that's okay. Absolutely. A Khaleesi, the, which was actually a title rather right. than a name in Game of Thrones, was one of the biggest unlikely baby name hits. And it, it spawned all sorts of different spellings and spinoffs. Essentially, parents will pick up on a name if they are ready for it. It doesn't matter how famous you are. Madonna never inspired a baby name trend, but a much smaller celebrity or a smaller character who has the right name will hit parents where they're ready. Let's bring on a caller at 800-642-1234. Lee is with us in Ruley. Lee, hi. How's it going, Rob? Uh, so we have two daughters. They're both in their 20s. Our first daughter's name is Hero, like H-E-R-O, which uh, I think it was in a William Shakespeare play, like Much to Do About Nothing. And then our, I know our youngest daughter is Hazel, and I know there's some Hazels out there, but she is 21, so I think we were ahead of the curve there. Interesting, Lee. Thanks a lot for that. You said hero in part from a Shakespeare character. Do we often go to uh, Shakespeare, Laura, for our, our naming inspiration? Shakespeare has been a huge influence on naming. Um, for instance, the name Miranda is just one of many that were actually created by Shakespeare. And as for the name Hazel, that is very much 
on trend at very cutting edge in Wisconsin. Names like Hazel and Eleanor and Theodore, the kind of gentle throwback name is very much a Wisconsin style today. Thanks a lot for sharing that, Lee. Yeah, I always wonder about that, Laura. What determines when a name gets recycled or churns back up, one that for a while we think is old-fashioned, uh, and all of a sudden it's cool again? I think it takes a certain number of generations that our own names seem ordinary, our parents' names seem boring, boring our grandparents sound old, but then once you get back to about your great-grandparents' <laughs> generation, we're ready to recycle those. Those names sound fresh again. Let's go back to our callers. Rebecca is with us in Newton. Rebecca, hi. Yes, hi. I just wanted to share my son's name. I haven't heard anyone else with this name, but um, it's a last name. So my son is named Killian, and I found out it's actually a really common name in Europe, and especially in Ireland, right. an Irish name. I didn't name him that because we're Irish or he is or anything. I just found I really loved the name when I was pregnant. My husband and I couldn't agree on anything, and I saw it on TV, and I thought, oh, I love that name. Now, wait, where did, the name, where did you see the name? Where did you see the name Killian? Was it a character's first name, was, or was it the beer? No, it was the first name, and I was watching a really bad reality TV show, and somebody's <laughs> kid was named that. <laughs> there it is again. Rebecca, thanks a lot. <laughs> a bad reality TV show, Laura, but she liked the sound of the Irish name Killian. Absolutely. The worst TV show can have the best names. And that uh, that sound, that Irish sound, even if we don't realize it is that, is very fashionable. America loves Irish names to the point that more Americans identify as Irish American than there are people in Ireland. It's just a style we like. Rebecca, thanks a lot for sharing that. We're talking to Laura Wattenberg, founder of Namerology.com. Look at the latest trends in names, what drives changes over time, and the names we choose for newborns. And you can join in at 800-642-1234. Have you noticed names that rise and fall over time? Is your first name disappearing among new generations? Not seeing a lot of baby Roberts out there, I'll tell you that. Call in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. We'll continue the conversation coming up on Central Time. It's Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. We're naming names right now with baby name expert Laura Wattenberg. You can follow her work on the history of names and the latest trends at Namerology.com. It's like numerology. We'll put in an A instead of the U. You could join in at 800-642-1234 with your thoughts, the story behind your name, your quest to find a name for a kid, what decision you ended up making, where you looked for inspiration, and what you're noticing when it comes to people's names these days. Call 800-642-1234. Back to your calls with Duke in North Prairie. Duke, hi. Hi. Um Yes, so my my name being Duke, uh, my my dad, um, I'm 66 now. My dad had an uncle that was nicknamed Duke, and as uh, at that time, people didn't really name their children strange or unusual names. But my dad had that idea; he wanted me to my name to stick out. And all my life, I've basically had to explain my name to people and and explain that it's not a nickname. Oh. They assume that it is. And I've met very few, um, maybe one or two in my whole lifetime, another person whose name was Duke as well. Interesting. Duke, thanks a lot for sharing that. Laura, a a, a nickname uh, from a family member turns into a name name. Absolutely. And I have good news for Duke. 
back in the day, it's true, Duke was a nickname. So Duke Ellington, Duke Snyder, that wasn't their given name. Mm -hmm. But today, Duke is suddenly taking off as a baby name. Not only is becoming more common, but he's going to sound very youthful for the rest of his life. Excellent. Duke, thanks a lot for sharing that. Now, speaking of nicknames, Laura, you had a piece uh, recently looking at, you know, shorter nicknames for boys, you know, diminutives of their full name, many of them fading, except uh, Cal, Mac, Kit, and Wes. They're booming. What's going on with our nicknames for boys? It's interesting. We've mostly done away with nicknames in this country. In England, for instance, uh, cute nicknames like Billy or Ollie are really popular for boys. But in the United States, we've gone formal, unless parents can come up with a nickname that wasn't so common in previous generations, like Duke, for instance, or, or Ace, or a nickname like Cal that was familiar but not very common. We're looking for freshness. That means no to Mike and Dave, but yes to Cal and Wes. Interesting. Uh, let's go back to our callers now. Tom is with us in Madison. Tom, hi. Hi, thanks very much. You were talking about Killian. The Killian that came to my attention is Killian Murphy from the TV show Peaky Blinders. Sure. Except he spells it with a C. And when my dad was growing up, I grew up with his stories, of course, and he had two really, really close friends, and the three of them were Thaddeus, Rupert, and Alphonse. And I just thought that was a wonderful combination of names. Thaddeus, Rupert, and Alphonse. I would go see that vaudeville show, Laura. Are any of those names uh, making a comeback, though? That is a remarkable trio. We're seeing some um, interest in Thaddeus as a, a biblical name, But the name Rupert, interestingly, we think of it as the ultimate English name, like Rupert, Neville, Nigel. Those names are all completely out of fashion in England, but starting to take off in the United States simply because we don't have a Grandpa Rupert. So you might be seeing more in your neighborhood. Thanks a lot for sharing that, Tom. Stephen is with us now in La Crosse. Stephen, hello. Hi there. Thanks for taking my call. What's yeah, what story um, do you want to share, Stephen? Yeah, interesting thing with my family, uh, it's been a tradition, well, I guess since the beginning, since uh, Frederick the Great. Anyway, the my father's name is uh, Frederick William, and my oldest brother's name is uh, William Frederick, and his son's name is Frederick William. Anyway, the <laughs> tradition is the firstborn son in our family is always named Frederick William or William Frederick, and it just kind of hops hops back and forth, and it's just a tradition on that side of the family um, going back all the way to Frederick the Great, the King of Prussia, essentially, and it's just kind of interesting back then that those names would be really common, and now those names are less common these days, so it's just fascinating. I really like this program. Stephen, thanks a lot for sharing that. It's interesting, flipping, flopping the first and middle names. Now, William is is in now, Laura. Uh, Frederick, I'm guessing, not so much? Frederick, not so much. The, that's a much heavier name, whereas William is a lot smoother. And The other secret that William has going for it is the flexibility in nicknames. We don't aren't seeing boys called Bill anymore. They're Will or Liam. And Liam, in fact, is America's favorite name for boys. Stephen, thanks a lot for sharing that uh, bit of family history there. Bill joins us now in Lake Mills. Bill, hello. Hi. Well, the Williams uh, are kind of humorous because in my family, I am Bill. My uh, father is Bill Sr. 
I'm Bill Jr. My grandfather uh, was uh, middle name was William, and my son, uh, we chose William or Bill uh, to have a William the third because it's uh, hard to get a third. Um, and then when I got married, my uh, wife's name uh, would have rhymed with my last name, so I cautioned her that she might not want to choose my name as hers because it would be like olive oil or daisy duck or, or daisy duck bill thanks a lot laura is i don't know if you study intergenerational trends as much is it as common with as with our last two callers to keep that same name going generation after generation within a family in fact it's much less common although when you have a long tradition like that parents still want to stick with it there's a real distinction having third or fourth or fifth after a name. But the rate of juniors has absolutely plummeted from where it was in the middle of the 20th century. So in the future, we just aren't going to have as many opportunities for those thirds and fourths. Thanks a lot for that call. We're talking to Laura Wattenberg with Namerology.com, looking at naming trends in the United States and taking more of your calls. Uh, Roseanne is with us now in Madison. Roseanne, hello. Hi. I just had a grand niece name her two small babies, London and Sloan, and I didn't want to sound like a really strange aunt asking them where they got those names from. So <laughs> do you know anything about London and Sloan? London and Sloan. So you mentioned, Laura, earlier place names. We're, we're casting wider nets for our place names. So London might fit into that. And uh, Sloan is also a place name in London, but oh. I don't know where those uh, those new babies live. But London is a particularly popular name in the southeastern United States. It used to be that the whole country named more similarly. So like in 1960, Michael and David were essentially the top two names in every state in the union. Today, it's, there are a lot more regional differences. So names can really surprise you from place to place. Interesting. Thanks for sharing those, Roseanne. Uh, Anissa is with us in Black Creek. Anissa, hi. Hi. Um, I'm an elder millennial, and I'm actually an identical twin, and I have an older sister, and their names are Allie and Megan. And being born as an Anissa has been, you know, a little bit unique back in the day where you didn't have a whole lot of people with unique names and Although I love it now because whenever I do meet someone with my name, I get very excited. It's like meeting a celebrity. <laughs> um, naming my own children, I didn't want to do that to them. So I had names that are not like super common, but not necessarily super unique. So, folks, it's not what it's all cracked up to be to not be able to find your name on a mug or a keychain growing up. Anissa, thanks a lot for sharing that. Yeah, Laura, I, I assume people in your comments section on your website talk about whether or not they were happier with their common name or their unique name. Do you see a trend in in what people end up preferring? The real trend is over the course of a person's lifetime. At the age of 12, no one likes the names their parents gave them. (laughs) By the time we're in our 20s, we usually appreciate them. But when it comes to the souvenir license plates, next time you go to a, a tourist center and look at the racks of souvenir license plates, you'll find that a lot of them have names that are... 50 or 60 years behind the times, they've stopped printing new metal license plates because names have become so diverse, it just doesn't pay. Thanks a lot for sharing that. Time for another caller or two. Carver is with us in Winston. Carver, hello. Hi, I was just calling. I thought my name was a little bit unique. I'm one of nine children in my family, um, and my brother's name is Carter, and my other brother's name is Carlin. 
and then I have six sisters. But most of the time when people try and uh, say my name, they end up just saying my oldest brother's name Carter. on accident. Yeah. Now, with all those similar names, with somebody else, hey, Carver, get in here for dinner. Do you, did you always know who was being yelled at with, with the similarities? My, my, mother would, my mother would run through the names, and <laughs> dinner was served at a particular time, so we all just ran down the stairs or wherever we were. Excellent, Carver. Thanks so much for sharing that. Now, Carver would fit into that uh, active boy trend, right, Laura? Oh, absolutely. Carver is a name on the rise. Parents love the, the surnames that end in ER because it really is – a suggestion of a doer. Most of them come from an old-fashioned trade we might not even see anymore, like a, a thatcher for, who would make thatched roofs. But the, the energy behind the idea of doing that trade still sticks with the name. Carver, thanks for that call. And Laura, we'll leave it there. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you, Rob. That's Laura Wattenberg, founder of Namerology.com and author of the Baby Name Wizard books. She joined us for for a look at the latest trends in names. You can keep sharing your stories on the Ideas Network Facebook page. Coming up tomorrow on Central Time, we'll talk to the author of the book Untouchable about two different justice systems in the United States. That's tomorrow here on Central Time.